we're going to talk about some principles in the Word of God. We, we looked at last week that the cross and the resurrection were enabling powers for us to experience transformation in the Lord. And so the cross and the resurrection, Jesus died for us, obviously. The grave being empty was proof positive that he was who he said he was. And so God wants to continue a process of transformation. And that process of transformation came because of the cross and because of the resurrection. And we have to partner up and participate with God as this ongoing transformation happens. And so we, we, if we're believers, and I really want to stress this, and you'll hear me say this, and maybe, maybe you might say, Tracy, I hear you say that over and over and over and over again. Yeah, I get that, but there may be somebody here who's never heard this, that being a Christian is about being in Christ. It's not just mentally agreeing in Christ. It's being in him. And so you often find this phrase in the Bible, if anyone is in Christ. And the Bible says that if we're in Christ, we just don't believe in Christ. We are, we've placed ourselves in Christ. It becomes, starts with belief. If we're in Christ, this is what God says about us. You are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And that you have actually been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I think it's 2 Corinthians 5, like 15, 16 through 21, that it's, it's giving us an identity of who we are in him. It's not just, the oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus, and you go about your life, but you've actually placed yourself in him. You've placed yourself in this building today. You are in here, and, and that's how we're to be in Christ. And so this, this transforming power, when we, come, when, we, when we step into a relationship with Jesus, he releases something called grace, by grace are you saved through faith. It's not of yourself, it's not of works, so that no one can boast, but it's a gift from God. And so he empowers us with this grace. Grace is a change agent, a supernatural change agent that gets placed in us at the new birth, at being born again. We, we have a new life. Nicodemus struggled over that. How can a person be born again? How can he enter into the mother's womb again? Jesus said you're born once fleshly or of water, a water birth, and, and a, a physical birth is a water birth. And you're born a second time. If you're born again, you're born by the Spirit. They're not the same birth, but there's a second birth. And so we're born again, and this change agent of the grace of God comes in to begin a transformation in us. We're literally translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son he loves. That's what the scripture tells us. So we're translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus. And this enabling grace, the power of God for change, causes a transformation and continues to cause a transformation in us as we cooperate and participate with God as he offers all kinds of transformation and changes in our lives. Last week I neglected to tell you. Remember I told you a story last week that I had an uncle who, you know, there was a tiff in the family and the family was split and and my mom made him a birthday cake, and dad delivered it, and I was little three, four-year-old Tracy was in tow with dad, and, and, uh, and the gift was offered, the olive branch was offered, the opportunity for reconciliation, for relationship, for friendship, for restoration was offered, and my uncle rejected it. He said, I don't want your cake, and you can get off my property. So it didn't go too well. But I forgot to tell y'all, it did get reconciled. Don't, don't you hate, I, I do, I hate when I'm, what happened to them? It got reconciled. I don't remember if that 
TIFF lasted six weeks, six months, or six years. All I remember is that when I was a little older, everything was restored, and everybody was healthy, and everybody got along and, and lived that way until he went to be my uncle, became a believer, and went on to be with the Lord. So, okay, everything got reconciled last week. We can, we can now go on to the next episode. Okay, we know, we know what happened now. But God wants to transform us, but we're in constant uh, participation with God. And there's something we have to know. We have to know how our kingdom works. See, again, I already said we've been translated into a different kingdom. Jesus himself said this. Listen to what Jesus said. He said, the children of the world are more wise in understanding how to operate in their kingdom than the children of light are. We need to understand the kingdom of which we've been translated into and how it works and how to live in that kingdom because it's different than the world's. And you know that, you know, if somebody does you wrong, you know what the world system is, I'll do them wronger. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll amp it up. Jesus says, don't even go that route. You know, just go ahead and forgive. Because I'm going to tell you principle of the kingdom. Given it shall be given unto you. You'll reap what you sow. So here's the thing. Somebody has sown bad towards us. We can sow bad back, and, and that's, that's the natural process. You reap what you sow. But there's a supernatural process. The supernatural process is that you as a believer are going to reap what you sow, but you can step it up a level. They cursed me. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to bless them. Well, they don't deserve that. Well, they probably don't. Well, I think I, well, you, you can think that all you want, but God's got a system. He's got a kingdom. And he says, as long as the earth remains, there will be seed time and harvest. There will be sowing and reaping. Winter and summer, cold and heat, all that will exist. And so as long as the earth remains, there's this, this, this reciprocal response to what you do. So now, if you curse, then they curse, and you curse, and they curse. And that's the natural world. That's the kingdom of the world. But we got a higher kingdom. And that's why God says this, I want to tell you, bless, I say, curse not, for you are designed to inherit a blessing. Well, the way I'm going to get a blessing is I'm going to decide not to curse. I'm going to decide to bless. And I break the cycle. And God begins to bless. In fact, God, just let, the, let, let God vindicate you. You know what the psalmist said? Psalm 23. He will prepare a table before for you in the presence of your enemies. So just let him do it. And one day your enemies, they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth as they look at you being exalted and being blessed because you decided, I'm not going to live as the world lives. I'm going to live as a believer lives. I'm going to be wise in how my kingdom operates. And so we're going to talk about what we need to know for transformation and then what we need to do to create transformation. So that, that's our topic today, how to establish a transformation. Now, in Romans chapter 8, mind-blowing verses, as so much of the Bible is. Romans chapter 8 starts out with the word, therefore. Now, you've probably heard this said many times, and it's a cute little saying, but it's also a powerful saying. It, it, it's true. Anytime you see the word, therefore, you should ask yourself, what is it therefore? Because you don't begin conversations with therefore. If someone came up to you after church today and said, therefore, you need to be at my house today at 2, you go, I'm missing a whole bunch of information here. 
You don't start with therefore. So chapter 7 is a, a chapter of Romans that we can all relate to. Remember Paul says this, oh, wretched man that I am, what's going on? I want to do good and I don't do it. I don't want to do bad and I do it. You know, I got all this war going on inside me. Who shall deliver me from this bondage of death? And, and then it goes on to say, praise be to God. Chapter 7 says, praise be to God that Jesus Christ has delivered me. And so there's this battle going on. Well, well two things. One, I don't want you to think God doesn't care about how we live and, and what we do. He does. But I also know this, that anytime we do wrong, if our hearts are geared towards God, it cuts against the grain of where our hearts want to go. And so, as it should, it should. And when that happens, we can really feel condemned. We can feel like, I don't even know why I call myself a Christian. And of course, if you say that, the devil's right there saying, yeah, I was wondering the same thing. How do you even call yourself a Christian? You know, how do you do this? And so we get all this condemnation, all this shame, all this judgment on ourselves. And the scripture, which is actually produced by the Holy Spirit, not by man or woman, but by the Holy Spirit, he says, therefore, you got this big battle going on, like Romans 7 says, but you're in Christ. He has delivered you. Therefore, there is now no, what? Condemnation. There's no harsh judgment. There's no condemnation for those who are, and there's the phrase again, in Christ Jesus. Not for those who just happen to drive by a church and wave, but for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, do we see where the PowerPoint is here? It's in Christ. It's not in ourselves. In Christ Jesus... The law, there's some laws working, the law of the Spirit, it's a capital S, we could say Holy Spirit, the law of the Holy Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. You'll find those combinations quite frequently. When, when, the God, when God's talking about the Spirit, he'll often use words connected with it like life, peace, joy. When he talks about sin, you'll often see words like death connected to it. And so just as people who want to enjoy life, we've got to say, which do I want, sin and death or the Holy Spirit, life, peace, and joy? It's not a real difficult decision, but maybe it is. Do you remember Joshua? Joshua got before the people and said, this day I'm going to challenge you. Do you want to serve the gods of Egypt that our God defeated soundly, every single one of them? If you want to, go ahead, have at it. Or would you like to serve the gods of the people on whose land we are dwelling right now? If you want to, have at it. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And this day I've set before you life and death. Okay, here's your choices. You wouldn't think the next line was necessary, but he says this. Choose life, in case you're going, I don't know, this is a tough one. Is this a trick question? He said, choose life. And boy, I like this, so that you and your children might live. The generational blessing of God, so that you and your children might live. And so I encourage you today, choose the law of the Spirit who gives life, not the law of sin and death. And it goes on to say that for what the law was powerless to do, and this is... 
this is not really hard to understand what I'm going to talk, but it is deep. You know what I mean by that? I mean, there's a deep truth you can just sense in your heart. It's, it's not difficult, it's just deep. What the law was powerless to do because it was weakened through our flesh. We're going to find out in a minute that there's nothing wrong with the law of God. The law of God is righteous and good and pure. Now, I do want to stress the law of God, not the laws that we men added to the laws of God. And sometimes our hearts were really honest because God tells us that, that we should have a day of rest and we should cease from our labors. And so we ask a thoughtful question like I would, what, what do you call labor, God? And so then people came with all kinds of rules. These are literal rules. If, if you could tie a knot on a bucket with one hand and put it down the well and draw water, that was not working. But if you had to use two hands to tie the knot, that was working. You could walk this far, and that was not working. Take one step further, and you've now worked. And so, and I get it, because I would be asking the question too, okay, I want to obey you, God. What, what do you call work? What do you call labor? But we always like to make little laws about things. Some of you, on your day of rest, can work in the yard, and it's invigorating to you. You work in the yard, you've been the flower beds, you've mowed the yard, and, and others might look at you, this is how we get judgmental, and say, well, they call themselves a Christian. They're out there mowing the lawn and working in the flower beds. They're working on their Sabbath. But it's not work to you. Now, if you go out there on Sunday, which might be, and by the way, Sunday doesn't have to be your day of rest. God still has the Sabbath. Once you know that, people tell me sometimes, you don't really keep the Ten Commandments. You skip the one about honor the Sabbath. I don't. I want to honor the Sabbath. I'm not honoring a Jewish Sabbath. I'm not bound by that. But God created the Sabbath for you and for me, for humanity, for people. And there should be a day that you set aside your labors and you refresh yourself emotionally, mentally, spiritually, physically, relationally with a day of rest. And if you're working seven days a week, you know, and I get it, there's times at work that that has to happen. I, I get that. Even, even God said, sometimes your ox falls in the ditch on Sunday and you're going to go out and work to get it out. I get that. But if our lifestyle becomes we're working seven days a week, 365 days a year, we're violating the Sabbath, and you will break because of it. If you break the Sabbath, it'll break you. And not that God says, I'm going to get you, but he's designed us to have a, a, a series of pattern of rest. And so, but God's basic laws are righteous and good altogether. And so we read on and say, the law was good. We just couldn't keep it. You've been there, haven't you? You say, I'm going to keep this, and you can't keep it in your own steam. And so it goes on to tell us that what we couldn't do, God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering the sin offerings of blood, the blood of bulls and goats and pigeons and doves, all that, could cover sin but never remove sin. But Jesus, when he offered his blood, this is what Scripture says, when he offered his blood, I love that, when he offered his blood, the Bible says he sat down. He was done. There was no more having to commit the sacrifice over and over and over and over. It was paid for. And so what, God, what we couldn't do, God did by sending his son to likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin. Sin was trying to condemn you and me, but God said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to condemn sin. And so he smashed sin, he condemned sin through Jesus, and it goes on to say, and so he condemned sin in the flesh. Why? In order that the righteous requirements of the law, another mind-blowing verse, 
that the, all the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in whom? In us. So here's, here's what that means. If God had a ledger up there and he pulled out all of his righteous, holy, correct things that we should do, and he looked at your grade on how you're doing, if you're a believer, it'll have A plus 100. You got a 4.0 GPA in, in God's kingdom. It was all met through Jesus, through Jesus. The, why in the world do you want to skip Jesus? I don't get it. People want to skip Jesus. I'll do it my own way. Your own way is not a very good way. Jesus has really got it covered here. And all the righteous requirements of the law have been fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We've yielded ourselves to the Holy Spirit. Now, the next set of scriptures, which flow on in Romans 8, we're, we're taught clearly we're new creations in Christ, we're the righteousness of God in Christ, but then he's going to show us a key component to how to walk and embrace and experience more transformation in our lives. So we need to pay attention to this concept, to this teaching, and it's in Romans 8, 5 through 8. Those who live according to the flesh have their, what's the next two words? Minds set. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. So we could say, okay, well, our minds must be awful then. No, they're not awful at all. Let's read on. It says, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, have their what? Minds set on what the Spirit desires, what the Holy Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God, does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. We know that our flesh life, and I'll, I'll try not to preach a four-part series in this one. I just want you to know this. Uh, sometimes we get this idea, and, and early, some early believers, not the book of Acts early believers, but as Christianity got 100 or 200 years old, started thinking our bodies were bad. And so, I mean, they would beat their bodies, or they would do all kinds of things, because our body's bad. Let me tell you, your body's not bad. You will never find Jesus talking down about his body. Isn't that interesting? You would think the king of glory, who operated in every dimension and got relegated to a human body, would have been saying things like this, if it wasn't for this stupid body, you know, I can't believe I'm hungry. If it wasn't for this body, he never talks disparagingly towards his body. Our bodies are wonderful gifts from God. They, they just need to stay in sync with the Holy Spirit. And we're always going to have a body. This body we're going to put away. God's going to resurrect it, and we're going to move from a corruptible body to an incorruptible body. And so God apparently is not mad at bodies. Adam and Eve had a body. So we'll have a body. So when it says flesh, I don't want you to think, oh, yeah, this dumb body I have. Uh, no, it's not what the Bible's referring to. It's talking about sinfulness or fleshliness or carnality. And when we live in that realm, we don't please God, and we know that. So what well, we have to pause for a moment, I really want you to do this. I really want you to pause for a moment. I want you to think, and it won't take deep thought, because you'll probably know pretty quickly, uh, what's your mindset on? What is your mindset on? 
If it's set on things of the flesh, it'll produce death, turmoil, frustration, aggravation, anger, hurt, shame, guilt, remorse, inferiorities. That's what it'll create. Galatians 5 gives a list of what the flesh will produce in your life and what the spirit will produce in your life. If you want everyone to look that up, Galatians chapter 5. But if your mind's set on the spirit, then it produces life and peace and all kinds of good things. So what is your mind set on? Where, where's the core? I get it. We got all kinds of things our minds go to. I wish I would have looked this up. We think thousands of thoughts a day. I didn't look up what the latest estimate is. But we want our, our mind set, our, our trajectory of life, to be after the Holy Spirit. Do you know someone, and maybe that someone's you. If it is, don't raise your hand. Um, do you know someone who's bitter or troubled or they're unforgiving or they're angry or they're shame-filled or they have a sense of inferiority or, or they have a foreboding? I, I've struggled with that a few times in my life, just real briefly, and I just really took authority over that. And, and maybe you've had that too, where you just wake up one day and say, man, every, everything's really wonderful. And you think, you hear a little whisper in your head, it can't stay that way. A shoe's about to drop. And you go, it is? But then I stop and say, where's that in the Bible? Where does the Bible say, I'm really aggravated that things are well in your life. So I've, I've, I've designed some destructive things for you. No, there's a foreboding people have. The Bible actually talks about evil forebodings. There's a foreboding. Uh, maybe a self-hate. All kinds of things. Where does that come from, our thought life? In one of the Avenger movies, which I know is what all ministers are using today to minister, an Avenger movie. Uh, in one of the Avenger movies, and if you're somebody who says, I don't even know what the Avengers are, they're a group of superheroes, comic book heroes, who are always called upon to save the world from some calamity. In this one thing, Avengers movie, there's, you know, it's not good. You know, the outer space people have come. There's machines and monsters, and they're trying to take over the world. And so the Avengers are doing their best, and the city's torn to pieces, and there's this little law in the action. And up comes riding on a motorcycle, puttering along, Bruce Banner. Now, are you familiar with Bruce Banner? Dr. Bruce Banner, a.k.a. the Incredible Hulk, okay? Well, he comes up and says, boy, this is horrible. And they say, yeah, it is horrible, and we... We've seen worse horrible. And, and then they want, they really don't want Bruce Banner. He's not going to help them at all. You know who they want? The Hulk. And so Captain America says, uh, Dr. Banner, this might be a good time to get angry. Because you remember, how many of you remember Bill Bixby and, and uh, Lou Ferrigno? Okay. And Bill Bixby would tell him, you, you better not make me angry. You wouldn't like me angry. And it usually took a while because Bill Bixby would try to fight it. And after a while, he'd finally get angry and turn into the Incredible Hulk. And, and, um, but in this particular episode, he says, Dr. Banner, it might be a good time to get angry. And Banner looks over his shoulder and he says, I have a secret. I'm always angry. And then he turns into the Hulk instantaneous instead of it taking a process because right bubbling below the surface is his anger. A lot of people live life like that. Barely bubbling below the surface is their unforgiveness, their hurt, their anger, their shame. 
their guilt, their inferiorities, their revenge, whatever. It's barely under the surface. And boy, you know, a certain thought can trigger it off like that. And bang, they, they, they turn from banner to halt, you know, all of a sudden. And it can be scary. You know what fed that? Their thoughts. Their thoughts. What they think on. What is their mind set on? Now, some of you may be in this situation today. And I want to say, you're here today to hear the word of God to get some freedom. So don't, don't let the devil whisper in your ear, he's talking about you. That ought to make you mad. Well, that helped out a whole lot, didn't it? No, maybe I am talking to you. I don't know that. No family member called me and said, prepare this message. We want to really get him or her. Uh, but you ought to be thinking, hold it. I don't want to stay this way. I don't want to live this way anymore then what is your mind set on? Maybe you've had a situation, and this would be a, a, a good scenario. Maybe, maybe you're 20 years out of high school, and when you were in high school, there was somebody that just made your life miserable. You know, I don't know if they bullied you, made fun of you, ridiculed you, just whatever it was. You know, And when you graduated high school, there was a thought in your mind, I'm never going to see them again. Okay, so all's well. 20 years goes by, and you see them, and all of a sudden, all these negative emotions just well up, and you, you, you couldn't even help it. Just boom, it was there. But to your credit, you said this, wow, I haven't felt that or thought that for 20 years. Good, good for you. You know, you know what you did? You said, I'm not going to live my life controlled by someone or something or some situation that I did not like. I'm not going to let that rule my life. So for 20 years, you've been free from all this angst, all this anxiety, all this bitterness, all this hatred, all this anger, all this unforgiveness because you didn't set your mind on it. And so it actually was a good thing because you'll deal with that quickly in that scenario because you didn't set your mind on it. You'll go back on about your life, and, but it'll, it'll catch you off guard for a moment. But some of you, if you're not doing that and you're 20 years out of school and you're still thinking, oh, I tell you, if I ever see them. Okay, well, I want you to be free. See, the big lie of the devil is they don't deserve your forgiveness. Who cares what they deserve? We're talking about you. You need to be free. You don't need to whisper to your grandchildren, I have a secret. I'm always angry. You know, who wants, who, uh, thanks, Grandma or Grandpa. That's, that was a, that's great. No, you want to be free from that, free from that. So what are we going to do about it? We're going to do the Word of God. We're going to look at a transformation that can take place. We're going to stay at this week or all of our lives if we need to, to gain victory over our thoughts. And those thoughts create emotions that produce death in us and around us. And the opposite happens too. You may be one who remembers back on a good moment, and you get flooded with joy and peace. That's okay. Do that. I saw a little, little sign one time. It said this, the older I get, the better I used to be. I thought, ooh, that's good. And, uh, and I've discovered that in my life. I told my kids for years that we were the champs. Two years in a row of the Columbus Baseball League. I went to the incredible school of Hauser. And so one day, and this is how important 
you know, all these milestones are. And, and by the way, I'm for them because I think they're wonderful. But I was rummaging around in a junk room and I found a bag of trophies. That's how important they were to me. They were, they were still fun. I'm not putting that down. But I got out one and it was champions. I thought, great, here's my other champion one. Runner up? Runner up? I've been telling everybody for years we were champions. So the older I get, the better I used to be. You know, I just, we were, we were champions. So I really didn't, it wasn't an intentional lie. It just, that's how I really remembered it. So, you know, if you want to look back and say, when I think of high school, it was bliss. Okay, good. Just, that's a good thought. Use, use good thoughts. So here's how we're going to work on this transformation. We're going to look at 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6, I totally believe if you'll pause and read it in any translation, you'll understand it. But it does get a little wordy, and I notice that sometimes we're lazy as learners. So we just, well, that was too much to think about, and we read on. Well, this is something we need to think about. So I picked something other than a translation. I picked a paraphrase by Eugene Peterson called The Message. And it's more everyday speak. In 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6, it says, The world is unprincipled. In case you didn't know that, I'll let you know. The world is unprincipled. It doesn't have principles. It's dog-eat-dog out there. The world doesn't fight fair, but we don't live or fight our battles that way. Never have and never will. The tools of our trade, other translations will say the weapons of our warfare, which I think is more powerful, but the tools of our trade aren't for marketing or manipulation, but they are for, now look what our weapons are for. Look what the tools of our trade are for. But they are for demolishing that entirely, massively corrupt culture. You think our culture is corrupt? Absolutely it is. Not every bit of it, but a big chunk of it. Now, where we err is we say, the world's never been like this before. You know, it's so corrupt. Okay. He was writing to the Corinthians we all are living in an entirely corrupt culture, and the Corinthians were. They were very worldly, very carnal. I mean, in their minds, they were avant-garde and cutting edge, and we're the, the elite, and we're all this and that. And you know what Paul said? You line up the way this culture is living to the beauty of Jesus, and it is an entirely corrupt culture. So we have weapons. We have tools. And these tools are for demolishing the entirely, massively corrupt culture. By the way, this isn't a physical fight. This is a spiritual thing. We use our powerful God tools for smashing warped philosophies, tearing down barriers erected against the truth of God. I love this next one. Fitting every loose thought and every loose emotion and every loose impulse into the structure of life shaped by Christ. You, you and I, we have loose thoughts, loose impulses, loose emotions, loose things. They're just bouncing around everywhere. Now, when things are loose, that's generally not good. I mean, you hear something rattling on the car or on an appliance or wherever. We, we try to hunt it down, find out what's loose here. And we want to tighten it up so it's not just bouncing around everywhere. And so here it says we have loose thoughts loose impulses, loose emotions, and we're going to structure them 
into a life shaped by Christ. Our tools are ready at hand for clearing the ground of every obstruction and building lives of obedience into maturity. Some people have been Christians for a long time, genuine Christians, but they've never matured. It's time for us to mature. It's time for you to get out the screwdriver and loosen up every thought, loose thought, tighten up every loose thought, every loose impulse, every loose emotion that just bounce around on you. And we all experience them. And I don't know that we'll never experience a loose one. We just don't have to let it control us. That's why you all experience this. You're driving down the road and you think of something, all of a sudden you become sad and melancholy. And then 15 minutes later, you think of something else, and you become excited. I was driving down the road one time, uh, many years ago, in Ohio, and they had a lottery. And I was saying the lottery is like $10 million. I got excited. I started spending $10 million. And I thought to myself, you are one optimist. You don't even have a ticket. And you're... You're already, and I didn't go get one either, but it was just interesting how your emotions can change. You're over here, then you're over there, then you're over here. And God says, let's, let's tighten up those loose emotions, those loose emotions, those loose impulses, those loose thoughts, and let's structure them into the life of Christ. Let's mature, let's be obedient. Now, the NIV says it like this, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. That's the goal. Now, what will happen is if we'll ever really do this, and we'll work on this, is our life becomes better. See, Paul told young Timothy, he said, Timothy, this is my paraphrase, Timothy, you're a young guy. I know you got all kinds of hormones Loose hormones bouncing around everywhere. I know you have all kinds of loose aspirations and goals and dreams. And all that's fine if it stays in line with the Holy Spirit. He wasn't, in fact, he told Timothy, don't let anyone look down on you because of your youth. So he wasn't beating Timothy up for being young and having all these loose things. He just said, let's structure them. And I want you, Timothy, to train yourself to be godly. Now, what the devil has sold the world and what we have been sold and what we have modeled oftentimes is that that's a really sad way to live, but one day mercifully we'll die and go to heaven, and hopefully that'll be better. But you know what? Paul told Timothy, he said, train yourself and exercise yourself into godliness, for it has promise in all things. So you're telling me godliness has promise in my relationships? In my friendships, in my marriage, in my work, in my hobbies, in my mental health, my emotional health, my physical health, my spiritual health. Yes, godliness is profitable in all things. Now in this life, so we're talking about this realm we live in, now in this life and in the life to come. So it's a wonderful thing. Now the fight will be a struggle. And again, when people go, well, you're being negative. Remember last week we read in Hebrews, in your struggle against sin, so there is a struggle that goes on. There will be a struggle. But we've also looked recently that you and I sit in a place of victory because of him. Ephesians 1, Christ has been raised up, seated at the right hand of the Father, far above all reign, rule, power, dominion, in this life and in life, any name that can be named, anything that can be invoked, God's above it all. God's above it all. Jesus is seated above it all. And as I often say, and said I think it was last week, well, think, you know, 
happy for him, but what about us? Ephesians 2 says, here's what about you. And you and I have been raised up with Christ. We've been raised up with him and seated with him. Where's he seated? Far above everything. That's where we're seated. And that's why, little tidbit, it's a lie from the devil to say, the more I can be like the world, the more I can attract the world. No. That never is a biblical principle. You're not to be like the world, you're to be like Jesus. And here's what will happen. One of two things. Your lifestyle and the way you live, the choices you make, the places you go, the stuff you watch, the stuff you listen to, all those things, the attitudes you hold, how you work, how you play, how you do everything, it'll be a beautiful thing because Jesus has come to give you life, an overflowing life, so it's not going to be a drudgery. But the world will look at you, and one of two things will happen. This is from Scripture. You will either be something beautiful to them. The Bible says you'll either be a sweet-smelling fragrance to them, and you'll be a cornerstone or a stepping stone for them, or you'll be the stench of death and a stone of offense. I don't know of hardly any middle ground. You really love Jesus and live a life differently than the world does, and some people say, you know what? There's really something beautiful about that. Really something interesting about that. Or they'll say, seriously, you won't deserve this, but they'll say things like, well, they just think they're better than everybody. No, how how did you get that rap? The devil whispered it in their ear, and their guilt whispered it in their ear, and the spirit that's in them and the spirit that's in you are going like this. They'll, they, they just think they're better. They think they're holier than thou. They think this, they think that. Now, if you're acting like that, and that really is how you act and portray yourself, then we need to change that. But if we're living a lifestyle that's just trying to be like Jesus, then... We will find this, the sinners, the pagans, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, they like Jesus. A lot of the religious people like Jesus too, but some didn't. He was a stone of offense to them because he's living differently than they did and they didn't want to change. So here's our assignment for the week or however long it takes. We'll probably say our lifetime assignment because there's always something to grow in. What we're going to do is we're going to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. We're going to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. What does God's word say? And it can play out in a thousand different ways because I don't know what lies are rooted in you and what lies the enemy wants to whisper in your ears, what lies your own guilty conscience manufactures. 